Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Chris Higgins, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Chris Higgins, welcome. Thank you. So tell us, how did you get started doing philosophical work in education? Okay. Um, I should start by saying I'm a fan of a quote by uh, someone named Mary Catherine Bateson. She once said, in talking about your life, it is always equally correct to describe your life as a series of um, accidents and as a series of inevitabilities. Oh, In other words, you could bring either narrative frame to your life, and either one uh, seems to do a pretty good job with these things that, uh, that we call human life. And so I've thought about this question, and uh, it's pretty easy to tell it as a story of accidents. I mean, I was a philosophy major in college. I thought I'd go to philosophy grad school, fell in love, got married. That changed that plan a little bit. And by the time I was ready to apply to grad school again, uh, something about philosophy just felt to me too intramural. Hmm. I felt like to be a philosophy professor would be to be a philosopher, teaching philosophers, to teach philosophers, to teach philosophers, and I wanted to break out of that loop. I didn't sure. want to be caught in a circle that felt to me just a little too narrow. And so I thought, well, like my dad before me, I'll be a teacher. And so I sent away for catalogs at different places, and uh, my wife and I thought living in New York City sounded pretty interesting, so we sent away for the Columbia Teachers College catalog. And it arrived in the mail. I started paging through, and I came across this strange thing called philosophy and education. Sure. And, it, and it's not like I'd never thought of the combination before, but I certainly didn't know that there was an established field. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll apply to that. I mean, these are the two interests. I thought about going to philosophy grad school. I thought about teaching. Mm. Uh, and on some level, I had thought that the interesting philosophical questions had to do with the growth of human beings. Right. So it made sense to me right away. And it was sort of like, it's one of those moments where you sort of feel like, who sent this to me? And the answer is the registrar of Teachers College, because I requested it. But <laughs> it felt like more than that. It felt like fate. And so I applied, and I applied for a master's. Hmm. And then I got a call from a certain Renee Arcilla, okay. uh, my former graduate uh, uh, supervisor, and uh, now teaches at NYU. And he said, uh, Chris, your application looks really strong. You studied philosophy at undergrad. Why not consider a doctorate? And I thought, well, I, I never thought about that. I don't, I don't, I'm not ready to commit. And he said, listen, um, you have the back kind of background we want. Uh, why don't you come for a year, see how you like it, hmm. and uh, that way I can offer you a little bit of funding. And if you want to leave, you can leave. Hmm. Consider a doctor in philosophy. And I thought, well, boy, I'm really pulling the wool over his eyes. I'll be out of there in a year, and uh, I never left. So sure. here we are 20-odd <laughs> years later, and I'm still in the field, very much involved so the joke was on me, but um, it's been a good a, a good turn of events. So that's the story of a s series of accidents. I mean, right. it seems like I could have very easily not found out about the, the field. Uh, sure. But you could tell it also as a story of inevitabilities, too, because my whole family was educators. Hmm. Um, I was drawn to philosophy. And it was always the parts of philosophical texts that touched down a little bit closer to the life world, to human beings struggling to make meaning and mm -hmm. sense of their lives and grow and change. 
And, uh, you know, for example, it was the early platonic dialogues that grabbed me the most. These scenes of teaching and learning, but not any kind of ordinary teaching and learning. It didn't feel like a classroom. So I could also say I was destined to find the connection between philosophy of ed, and I did. Uh, so you could tell the story either way, but, uh, but either way, I'm happy the way it worked out. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that your interest in philosophy was uh, connected to this concern with the real world, real life, lived experiences, um, uh, that's your language there, um, uh, of education. Now, over the course of your career thus far, what are the sorts of questions that you found yourself uh, returning to, perhaps questions that emerge from that uh, intimate connection to the real world of human lives? Okay, so here I think we need to make a distinction between one version of applied work yeah. and another kind of groundedness that I'm, I'm trying to talk about. Uh, so Good. sometimes there's a, a, a conception of our field that says it's not worth anything if it isn't directly applicable to pressing contemporary problems of the public schools. Sure. And I think that's too strong. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't think that our field could or should be limited to that. Yeah. So the kind of groundedness I'm talking about isn't necessarily... Um, you know, how to, you know, whether or not we should have metal detectors, although sure. that's a really good question. Sure. And we're publishing a special issue on guns in schools and Ed Theory coming up. So I'm not against questions like that. Sometimes yeah. they, they liberate new veins of philosophical thought in a great way. But it has more to do with a kind of, I'd say, an existential groundedness. So mm-hmm. um, like I said, the Platonic Dialogues are a good example. So, so here we are, the, some of the formative works of Western ethics, but long before ethics became kind of meta-discipline, parsing the meanings of terms, we have a model of ethics that says it begins with friends, possibly strangers, um, confronting each other about the basic questions of leading a life. Right. What are you up to today? I'm rushing to the court. Why? I'm going to prosecute my father. What? And off they're running in the Euthyphro, and two hours later, Socrates isn't done um, sort of leading Euthyphro to the conclusion that he didn't really even know what piety was, right. even though he's convicting his father of impiety. And so that model has always inspired me that it's not the slightest bit anti-intellectual. They're the deepest questions, and they're pursued with precision. Right. But it's also not applied in this incredibly mechanical way. I mean, right. these are um, ethics is practical if by practical we mean the ultimate practical problem, which is how do you lead a good life? Right. It's not an easy one, right? So, so I think it was that um, you could call it ethical if you if you made some distinctions. You could call it existential if you made some distinctions. You call it educational. It doesn't really matter what you call it, but it has to do with keeping philosophy in touch with um, the life world, with questions of of uh, you know that touch down in our everyday life. As long as you add that they don't touch down in a way that's completely cliched, right? Because we, we do have categories for thinking about our everyday life already, and clearly, if we're drawn to philosophy, it's because some part of us senses that the categories we inherited do not do justice to the things we're experiencing. Hmm. We want to be able to name some aspect of our experience more fully, more accurately, um, and, and we're drawn to see, is there somebody else who's described their experience in a way that can help us um, get past this kind of um, little cliche that we've tried to capture our experience in that, that nonetheless rings 
rings false on some level. And so uh, in your response here, what I hear is a return to your earlier remark about the uh, perhaps intramural nature of uh, philosophy to your young self. Um, And I hear you to be suggesting a similar thing that you wish to avoid in philosophy of education. That is to say um, uh, that you'd like philosophy of education to be about more than just what happens in a school with teachers and with students. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. So I was trying to, I've been, my whole career, I've been trying to find a middle path between what I saw in some of my undergrad philosophy seminars, which felt like, oddly, a kind of vocational training yeah. for philosophy grad school. Right. Right. Dewey's great on this point. Dewey right. says it's still vocational ed, right. even if it's highbrow and literary. Sure. Um, and so I didn't want that kind of, um, that kind of intramural, like we're learning a shop talk. Right. Um, and how to, you know, uh, we're just uh, showing... We're getting the skills, how to slice a distinction ever more finely or something right. like that. On the other hand, when I first arrived at Teachers College, even though I was in this little bubble of the program of philosophy and education, all around me was my first exposure to educational discourse, which I I don't think it's overly harsh to say has a tendency to be anti-intellectual mm-hmm. and even to um, run into a kind of kitsch and sentimentality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the question is, how do you create a culture in education mm-hmm. which is intellectual, where that intellectuality doesn't mean distance from the world, because then sure. it wouldn't really be about education anymore. Sure. It means a kind of a, a desire to stay in touch with the complexity of the world. You refuse the simplifications, mm. and that drives your intellectual work. It's not, it's not bookishness per se. It's not an attempt to flee the real world for some ivory tower, but it is a kind of fierceness about the fact that you reject when people simplify and sweeten reality and you say, I want to know what's going on in this world. I really want to know. Hmm. And so uh, in which ways have you then been pursuing that uh, sort of orientation in your work? You mentioned before, you know, this kind of uh, perhaps uh, uh, hollowness uh, that, that folks may identify. I mean, uh, is that where you see your work uh, sort of engaging the human experience, the lived experience? In, in what ways have you been responding to this set of concerns? Okay, so um, the first way was I tried to sort out what is the relationship of philosophy to education? And so my dissertation actually was a little bit meta in the sense that I felt like I was in a field that didn't have a completely adequate self-understanding. We were torn by this, these two conceptions of rigor and relevance. Sure. Okay. And I just didn't feel like I could quite leave it alone. I thought I had to tackle it head on and try to understand how we could be simultaneously rigorous and relevant or find a third term that uh, gets past the dichotomy. Hmm. Uh, But it turned out that the most fertile part of that project was um, one particular chapter or one aspect of the dissertation. I I, I argued that philosophy has a special role in teacher education, and I called it liberal teacher education. And so what I meant was something akin to liberal learning or liberal education that we ordinarily think of as confined to the undergraduate years, but a kind of liberal learning about and for education, about and for educators. And so I tried to think through why it is that we have trouble thinking education and liberal learning together. Why is it that you might major in architecture because you want to understand how human beings have built and dwelt over the centuries, not simply because you want to be an architect. Or you might want to study paintings because they're amazing, and not simply because you want to be a painter or a curator. But then, you want to study education? Oh, you're going to be a teacher. It didn't make any sense. What questions are older or more interesting than how we learn Uh, how we're going to teach the next generation, what it means to be an educated person. So I didn't quite get why we don't seem to be able to think um, teaching 
and the liberal arts together. And yet I was in a discipline called philosophy of education. Right. So I wrestled with that for a while, and that led me to try to develop this conception of liberal teacher education. And a key part of that was pushing back against what I thought was a kind of discourse of asceticism, not aestheticism, like about art, but like monks and hair shirts. And because what I found was there's this kind of service ethos, which is admirable to a point um, that suggests that the point of teaching is to serve the students. I mean, sure. there's a way in which you can't argue with that. Sure. Yeah. But I thought at the same time that that starts to turn into a kind of self-avoidance um, and even a self-abnegation. Mm. And there's a way in which at the heart of teaching is the self of the teacher, a transaction between two human beings in process. And yet teachers are encouraged to think that insofar as the practice feeds them, that they're being selfish. Right. So it, I was looking for a third option between selflessness in teaching, which I think is a contradiction in terms, hmm. and selfishness, which is, of course, not ideal. So I called for something called self-full teaching, hmm. and that led to my book, The Good Life of Teaching, which right. is about the flourishing of the teacher as a condition of education. And it's a philosophy of work, and it tries to get at how teaching both offers resources for and impediments to um, the quest to lead a good life on the part of the teacher through his or her practice. Yeah, so I hear you to be, uh, in some ways, returning again to this uh, sort of uh, uh, resistance to um, uh, accepting the dualities that are presented to us, right? Sort of, in, in some ways, trying to overcome those dualities uh, in the service of a deeper, uh, uh, more fulfilling understanding of the concepts before us. Um, I wonder, in the final moments that we have remaining, um, if you might say a few words about uh, what you see as perhaps around the corner for us doing work in philosophy of education. You've suggested that there are some questions that are abiding questions or questions that are human questions, but um, uh, surely we've answered those questions. What, what, uh, what exists uh, around the corner for us? Uh, yeah, you set me up for that one, right? I mean, I, I, I do think it's sometimes disappointing when people say, this is an age-old question. There's a kind of yeah. fuzziness about it, and there's a kind of... Um, worshiping of, of the openness of the question yeah. that I don't think is dynamic enough for me. But it is true that I fall in the camp of, of people who think that the questions worth asking are not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. And that what we're striving for is a certain kind of relationship to the questions that is dogged and that is open-minded. But, but it doesn't mean that you find one and you put it up on a pedestal and you right. call it the question, what is a human being? And you just right. put a question mark after something. A real question takes a lot more than a question mark. Yeah. It takes an active process of reopening uh, lines of thinking that get closed down, right? And what it means to live in a culture and at a time and in a practice is constantly have big questions turned into narrow little either ors or answered with temporarily um, acceptable answers. Mm. So I would say you, you have to do this constant work of reopening the questions and you could argue that education is constantly trying to keep three really big questions open as far as possible. So those would be, you know, what does it mean to be human? Mm. What is the human condition? Do we have a nature? What is that nature? So we could call that sort of the philosophical anthropological question. And I don't think, I mean, anthropology tries to get at that in history and philosophy and literature. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's educational, but not in the narrow sense. Mm. But you can't be an educator without having some conception of who we are, what we need, what we're about. Um, I don't think you can run away from that question. We sometimes boil it down to Vygotsky's theory of the zone of proximal development, or sure. Piaget, or Kohlberg stages. But the bigger conversation is exciting. We should be inviting teachers into that. Mm -hmm. Or take um, the question of 
human flourishing, whether on the ethical side, sort of uh, what does it mean for me to lead a good life, or on the collective side, how, how ought we to live together, the political question. So the question of human flourishing, again, it sounds highfalutin, it sounds very far removed from schools, and yet if you think about it, any vision of pedagogy or the curriculum presumes at some level a vision of the educated person. Mm. You know, even if you say the aim of education is increased test scores on these two high stakes tests, you're presuming some kind of picture of what it means to be educated at the end of that process. And that picture is tied into broader notions in your culture. Whether you know you're arguing for them or not, you're assuming that this is what it means to leave a, lead a good life. So you, I don't think you can avoid thinking ethically and politically if you're an educator. But instead of inviting teachers into that incredible conversation that's really been the organizing question of the humanities uh, for thousands of years, instead we sort of try to boil it down to a series of answers too often, I mm -hmm. think. And then the third question I think that connects those first two, if one question is who are we, what is our nature, our condition, and the other is what ought we to strive to grow into? Mm -hmm. What is our, our flourishing collectively and individually? The question that connects them is what moves us toward that which is good for us. I call that the pedagogical question. Mm. And so uh, the pedagogical question is one part of three educational questions. Questions about what facilitates growth for us mm. is maybe a little more familiar to educators, right. but it's also broader than like instructional techniques. Right. You know, So I, I, I teach that those three questions are questions that educators can and should and should enjoy getting back in touch with. And for that, you need... Um, rich, philosophical, historically embedded texts that remind us of thorny aspects of the question that, that we've forgotten. Mm. Well, uh, in your answer, I hear a very uh, hopeful invitation for work yet to be done. Uh, Chris Higgins, thank you so very much for sitting down and chatting with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.